All right. Would you please turn to Mark 15? Mark 15, and we'll be going through verses 16 to, to 20. <clears throat> and the title of this message is The Worst Coronation of the Greatest King. The Worst Coronation of the Greatest King. <clears throat> the Word of God reads, verse 16. The soldiers took him away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and they called together the whole Roman cohort. They dressed him up in purple, and after twisting a crown of thorns, they put it on, his head, on him. <clears throat> and they began to acclaim him, Hail, King of the Jews! They kept beating his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling and bowing before him. <clears throat> and they, after they had mocked him, they took the purple robe of him, of him and put his own garments on him and they led him out to crucify him. Well, in the last message, in that previous passage that we examined, we studied the last trial of Jesus. <clears throat> when he stood before Pontius Pilate and was unequivocally condemned by all to death. Guilty, yet without charge. The most innocent person in all human history was sentenced to the most horrific death. We've also seen a very vivid illustration of the spiritual perfect substitution, where at the Passover feast, Jesus, the guiltless one, was condemned to death, while Barabbas, in the other hand, the guilty one, was, was released. And this physical exchange between Jesus and Barabbas was a reflection of the spiritual glorious exchange that took place between Jesus and everyone who believes in him. Without any efforts of their own. Just like Barabbas, without any good works that we have done. Jesus, the righteous one, took our punishment. And we, the unrighteous, us, the wicked ones, were set free. And every believer could say, I am the rebel, Barabbas. It is me. But look, look at me. My chains are gone. I'm free. My heart has changed. I'm released from this eternal punishment, this sentence of death that was hovering upon my head. How are you free? Jesus took my place. He died on my behalf. He died for me. This is a wonderful truth, is it not? It's out of this world kind of truth. 
Brothers, if we meditate deep enough on this wonderful, great exchange, it ought to launch our souls into heaven. And that with, with singing and making melody in our hearts, we ought to say, Amazing love, how can it be that my king would die for me? And as if this truth was not amazing enough, as if it wasn't enough to lead us into thankfulness, but wait, there is more, brothers and sisters. Because when we ponder upon just who our perfect substitute really is, <clears throat> and the suffering that he humbly endured in order to redeem unworthy and undeserving sinful people like us. And what amazement, what gratitude it will generate in our hearts. Brothers, the height of Jesus' personhood and the depth of the mockery he experienced in this passage that we just read is so vast, so infinite, that when, when we know that it is the eternal Son of God who suffered such a low degree of humiliation, why? So that we would be saved. And even the mute among us, their mouths would explode with thankfulness. Yes, even according to what Jesus said once, even the stones would cry out. And even those with the coldest hearts, when they ponder upon this truth that we're going to look upon today, they will, would, would say if they would just open their hearts, truly the love of Christ surpasses all knowledge. The outline for today's message. <clears throat> One, the identification of the king. Second, the vilification of the king. And third, the violation of the king. So before we study this passage, I believe it's best to keep in mind who Christ really is, who suffered this mockery for us and we want to see him right through the entire narrative as who he really is <clears throat> as a backdrop to this darkest hour in that redemptive history so the first point is the identification of the king the personhood of christ who is it that was tried in this narrative and was mocked and crucified who? It is the eternal, infinite, immortal, self-sufficient, self-existent Son of God that has become a man. While yet remains to be God. In John 1 verse 14 it says the word became flesh. Jesus became a man, but he never became a God. Nowhere in the scripture would it say that Jesus became God. No, the one who's begotten of the Father is always God. So what we have here is the unchangeable God who has become a man while never cease to be what he has always and will forever be. 
God. Jesus, the everlasting being, in whom, according to Colossians 2.9, all the fullness of the deity dwells. <clears throat> that is to say that Jesus is co-equal, co-eternal with God the Father. Again, in Hebrews 1.3, it says, And he, that is Jesus, is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. Meaning, this eternal Son of God, from eternity, from all eternity, he enjoyed all of God's attributes. And he has, and he possesses this divine nature. What does the scripture tell us about who this Christ is? He's the creator of all things. Colossians 1.16, for by Christ all things were created. And by implication, if he created all things, he is the owner of all things. And that we see this in Hebrews 1.2. Christ is appointed heir of all things. He's the upholder of all things. That's Hebrews 1.3. The giver of all things, Romans 8.32. He is above all things, Ephesians 1.22. So much, so much so, that all things ought to be counted according to Philippians 3, 8 as worthless, rubbish, trash, dung, human refuse in comparison to the incalculable, exceedingly supreme knowledge of both the sweet pleasure and the priceless treasure of Jesus' personhood. <clears throat> Brothers, when we hear this about Christ, how should we respond? Brothers, our heart ought to say, Yes, Lord, you are worthy to be the preeminent one. Yes, it is your rightful place to be honored. To be exalted, Lord Jesus. <clears throat> and yet, this Christ who is called the Lord of glory, by his, before his dazzling beauty, the whole angels would, wouldn't dare to look upon him, but they cover their faces as they cry out, holy, holy, holy. Yet this God-man, allowed himself to be a laughing stock, disgraced, ridiculed by a bunch of depraved men whose lives are in the clinch of his hands. And as we read this mocking coronation of Jesus, let us all tread carefully this holy ground with much fear and adoration let, let that fill our hearts, knowing what kind of person Jesus is. <clears throat> so now we move to the second point, the vilification of this mighty king. The vilification of that mighty king, meaning the insult, the mockery. And we start reading <clears throat> in verse 16, <clears throat> excuse me about that. Um, 
If you recall, the last passage ended up ended with the unjust um, scourging of of Jesus Christ just before his execution, and what took place here. Um, as we are about to read in this narrative, is the time between the scourging after the scourging is finished and his crucifixion. Jesus, the Lamb of God, here in this narrative, was thrown into the hands of savage wolves. And in verse 16, who are these wolves? It's these soldiers. It says in verse 16, the soldiers took him away into the palace that is the praetorium. Praetorium again, this is the headquarters of Pontius Pilate. And um, by the time those soldiers brutally scourged Jesus, tearing his flesh. Um, And please note, for the Jews, their version of scourging is that they they have maximum of 39 lashes. But this is not the version of the Jewish scourging. It's, It's the Romans one. And the Romans, they have no maxim, no limits to the number of latches. The only reason why they would ever stop is that when they get tired. So it's not hard to imagine Jesus at this point before they begin to mock him. His skin is now opened up, large wounds, bruises, blood is everywhere. And the scripture says they took him away into the palace. This word took can be translated to the word led. And so in other words, these Roman soldiers, after they scourged our Lord, they untied him from the post where he was tied to. And then they, after he's been flogged, they led him away. Now this word led. in that last day is the most common word that is used in all the events that took place. And if you look at the narratives of that last day before Jesus' crucifixion, in all the synoptic gospel, in fact, in all the gospels put together, you find that Jesus was led everywhere, from the Garden of Gethsemane to Annas, from Annas to Caiaphas the high priest, and from Caiaphas to to Pilate and from Pilate to Herod and back to Pontius Pilate. All the synoptic gospels ensure to insert in their narrative how that Jesus was led. And even now, after the last trial is finished, Jesus was led to Praetorium. In John 19, 13, even later on, we'll find that Jesus was led to the outside of the praetorium to be displayed before the crowd. And then after that, he's led in verse 20 of Mark 15 to Calvary so that he will be crucified. And if you add them all up, you would find in a span of 10 hours that Jesus was led 10 times. This is no doubt fulfillment of Isaiah 53, verse 7, where it says, Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. Brothers, before we move on, we must pause here for a moment and once again consider who he is 
Jesus Christ that allowed himself to be led. He is the Lord of Lords. The scripture speaks of him that he's the Lord of hosts. The leader of the heavenly armies who by his word he commands and his angels swiftly follow. This Jesus Christ that the scripture says that was led. He is our commander in chief who always leads us in triumph, the scripture says. And yet he allowed himself to be led by vile, wicked soldiers who were thirsty for his blood. We move on and we see that they wanted to gratify their sadistic urges. So it says, and they called together the whole Roman cohort. Now what's a Roman cohort? That's a, it's a group of 600 soldiers. And so they called the entire, it says here, the whole Roman cohort, the entire comrade to join in the party um, and have some fun abusing Jesus. Well, we don't know how many people, many soldiers actually responded to this calling and came and joined in, but we know why they did this. You see, these soldiers, they are ignorant of Jesus Christ and his identity. <clears throat> Who is Jesus Christ? They knew nothing of him other than that now he's been accused that he's the king of the Jews. And everybody, Romans and Jews, want him crucified. So to them, Jesus represented the, the stiff-necked Jews who resented the power of Rome. And um, those soldiers, they knew, they knew that they were considered by those Jews as worthless street dogs, filthy pigs dressed in military uniform. That's how the Jews viewed those soldiers. And so Jesus he, he claims to be the king of the Jews. He is their representative. And he fell into our hands. Great. And so these, these soldiers now will become like sharks. And they just smelled blood. And now they're starting to circle around Jesus. Their unspeakable hatred for the Jews turned them into a bunch of stray cats and Jesus to them was like a mouse. And their sadistic fun, now they want to mock him, toss him around before having him for lunch. So what did they do? And it's kind of like this. It's kind of like saying, so you want to be king, right? Fine. We'll, we'll play this game. Come on, let's, let's coronate this Jesus as a king. And so in verse 17, it says, They dressed him up in purple. In Matthew 27, 28, it tells us that, that they first stripped Jesus. And obviously to strip him was a shameful thing, shameful experience for, for all those Jews at that time. 
And then after they stripped him, one found the robe. It would have been part of uh, uh, the soldier um, military uniform. Uh, Matthew says that it was a scarlet, dark red. Uh, but over time, it would have faded away because it was probably an old robe some, from somewhere. And, then, and it turned into purple. And then they took it. Um, they took this worn out robe and they threw it around Jesus' shoulders. As though it's a, it's a king's drape. And it's kind of like in mockery, they're saying, there you go. Now you're dressed up like a king. <clears throat> Again, this is the eternal son of God. The one that the scripture says in Isaiah 6, whose train of his robe fills the temple of heaven. The one who's clothed with majesty and girding himself, according to Psalm 93 verse 1, with strength. Yet he allowed himself to experience shame. Shame of nakedness. And to be clothed with utterly despicable and most likely smelly robe. And to be thrown over his scourged body that is already torn. Then they take a look at him. I say, ah, that's not enough. We've got to do more. So what do they do? <clears throat> it says, and after twisting a crown of thorns, they put it on him. Crown of thorns were like their Caesar at that time. Um, all the kings of the past, they would um, adorn their head with golden crowns. Now, why do people, why do kings wear golden crowns? It's kind of uh, to point to royal authority and dignity. And so a soldier had a terrible sense of humor, one of those soldiers. And somewhere, most likely in the vicinity of that palace where they were, he found some thorny twigs. And so they grabbed these thorny twigs and they wove it into a mock crown. And they placed it on Jesus' head. And no doubt they would have pressed it down on his bro, brow. sorry, um, and, um, and it would have been with crushing force. Now, all the commentaries that I've read, they all agree that this would not have increased the pain of Jesus uh, that he suffered at that time. And that's because apparently there are no end, nerve endings uh, not many nerve endings in, in the head. But that these thorns would have punctured his head. And as a result of this um, pressure, a mess of blood will come out. A blood, as blood began to, to flow down from his head and crawling over his brow and, brow and into his face, obviously filling his ears and blurring his vision. And then to add insult to injury, Matthew adds that they put a reed in his hand. It's just um, a reed is, is a wooden stick, a branch from a tree somewhere. This is also to imitate the scepter of, of the king. Again, similar to the golden crown, 
Um, the scepter, what does it represent? It speaks of the imperial sovereign authority. So kings would adorn themselves with crowns and a scepter in their hands. But these soldiers, they put a crown of thorns and a reed in Jesus' hand as to say, that's the kind of pathetic authority you have, Jesus. And as we continue on and to complete their humor, which was really not really funny. In verse 18, it says, And they began to acclaim him, Hail, King of the Jews. Now, please note, it says they began to acclaim, meaning they took a while saluting him as though he's a king. And how did they salute him? Well, Matthew tells us that they knelt before him. They knelt down before him. And after hailing him, John says they began to come up to him to give him slaps in the face. Wow. So the picture we have here is this Jesus standing there. His legs could barely hold him up with a crown of thorns on his head, small branch in his hand as a scepter, and a rope on his shoulder. And these soldiers, they semicircled Jesus to pay homage to him. And one at a time, each one would kneel down, mocking him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And you can just imagine in that scene, some would kneel and hail with, with a vulgar, loud, shouting laughter. And yet others who perhaps can be Better actors, they would pretend to bow down in fear and trembling. And each one gets up and with this thick, heavy soldier hand, he gives Jesus a slap across the face. Some good soldier slap. Then one after another takes his turn to strike Jesus. And what is this all saying? It's like these Roman soldiers are saying, you're a foolish king. You're, you're dopey. You're, you're an idiot, Jesus. And that's what they were saying. They want Jesus to look like a clown, not a king. A silly loser, not a, not a sovereign law. And to them, what, are, what they want to communicate is that his authority from scale 1 to 10 is negative 1,000. And yet, brothers, sisters, the Jesus remains to be the King of kings and Lord of lords. The scripture tells us that on his head, not just a golden crown like earthly kings have, but many diadems. And there's not a reed in his hand. But Hebrews 1, 8 says, but of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the righteous scepter is the scepter 
of his kingdom. This is El Shaddai, the God Almighty, whose throne is high and lifted up. And the scripture tells us that from his presence, earth and heaven flee away. Revelation 20.11. The one who all thrones and dominions, all rulers and authorities were created by him, through him, and for him. Colossians 1.16. It's Jesus. Before his presence, the scripture tells us again, the mountains melt like wax. The earth shakes. These Roman soldiers, even though they were blinded to Jesus' authority, yet Jesus remains to be even at this point in time, the Son of God who does what He pleases, when He pleases, where He pleases, how He pleases, with whomever He pleases. And even in his condescended state when he came to our planet. And even during his time on earth when he suspended the use of his divine attributes. Brothers, the scripture tells us clearly that he still remained to have authority to forgive sins. That he had authority to heal diseases, to raise the dead. The laws of nature submitted to him. And even demons were terrified of him. And yet, while he still remains as glorious and majestic as he always has been and will forever be. Yet this same law stooped so low to wear a crown of thorns on his head. And allowed himself to look like a fool. How could he allow himself to be so scorned, so ridiculed? From from being the supreme one of the world to become the scum of the world. How is it that the one who's above all things has become the dregs of all things? Answer, is it not because he loves us that he did whatever it took, wholeheartedly, so determined, in order for him to be our perfect substitute? That is why he did all that. Praise be to his name. Amen. Praise be to his name. Well. That was a vilification. Now we come to the violation, the physical abuse, the mock in a form and the insult in a form of physical, crushing Christ, physically speaking. So going back to the narrative, and after those inhumane soldiers had, had fun disgrading Jesus, disgracing him, sorry, and they now became hungry. It's lunchtime. Let's eat Jesus alive. 
So verse 19, it says they kept beating his head with a reed. Now, which reed? Matthew tells us they took the reed and began to beat him on the head. Again, which reed? It's the reed. There's only one reed, and it was in Jesus' hands. So they grabbed Jesus' stick. They took it, and they started hitting him with it on, the, on his head, driving, obviously, no doubt, this crown of thorns deeper into his skull. And you can just imagine this scenery that with every strike they inflicted upon Jesus, it was as to say, what a miserable king you are. One who gets hit over his head with his own scepter. What, what, what a joke. What a clown you are, Jesus. And if that was not enough, they descended even lower and lower in that ladder of depravity. And now it says there, and spitting on him, kneeling, bowing before him, bowing before him. That is another word of saying prostrating oneself, falling down and worshiping in reverence. Spitting on him. Imagine one soldier at a time would spit on Jesus' face, covering his face with their saliva. There's nothing more degrading in all cultures than, than, than to spit, right? Even, even in the Middle Eastern culture, all the more so. And he spit on, on Jesus' face. It's a fulfillment again in Isaiah 56, chapter 50, verse 6, where it says, I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. Again, Isaiah 53, verse 2, it says, he has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. Verse 3, he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. One like, and like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. To those soldiers and to the Jews at that time, Jesus looked very ugly. They kept beating, spitting, kneeling, bowing. In other words, again and again. Kept beating continually, again and again, throughout all the time from this point onwards. What they did was they kept hitting him, spitting on him, falling on their knees, prostrating themselves, obviously in pretense worship, is just to show how human depravity 
at its core really looks like. Raw, pure evil. If you think about it, these men, they knew nothing of Christ. They had nothing to gain by treating Jesus this way, right? Although they didn't know him, there was so much outpouring of anger, ridicule, so much hatred. And they did this just for the fun of it. And if you've gone back in time and you had an opportunity to ask one of these soldiers, why are you doing this? I probably would say, oh, just just releasing some stress or something. Well, they were not the only guilty ones at that time because John tells us in his parallel account that what Pilate did was he brought out Jesus to the Jews, hoping that somehow, maybe, just maybe, when they take a look at Jesus now, broken, humbled, that they would feel sorry for him and they would want Pontus to release him. Maybe somehow the Jews were better than these hungry for blood kind of soldiers. Well, no. The Jews, their hearts were dried up of any compassion. Pilate sat at his judgment seat. And in John 19, verse 14, he says to the Jews, Behold your king. And against all kind of humane, like savage beasts. It's almost as though they were controlled by some satanic spell of of hatred and animosity towards Jesus. They take a look upon Jesus, and then it says here, they cried out, away with him. Away with him. Meaning, kill him. Kill him. And then they ended up with, crucify him. Don't let it be an easy death. We want it to be a slow, torturous death. It says, Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And here, here are the Jews were exposed. The true colors showed because it says that the chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. <sighs> those, those were the religious leaders. Those were the ones who were meant to lead people to God. They were meant to be the light to the world. Unanimously declared in, in one hand, that we have exclusive loyalty and devotion to a pagan emperor, while sim- simultaneously they were calling for the murderer, for the murder of the Son of God. Wow. Well, back to our narrative in the Gospel of Mark. Well, Jesus must die, so the soldiers 
have to go back to work. Fun time is over. So in verse 20, it says, after they had mocked him, it says they took the purple robe off him and put his own garments on him and they led him out to crucify him. And that ends this narrative. How do we conclude this, brothers and sisters? When we have our greatest king being coronated with the worst kind of coronation. Well, I want you to consider three things. We want to consider three things in this narrative. First, consider our nature. Consider our nature. Both the Jews and the Gentiles in this narrative, they both represent the dark depravity of humanity. Brothers, before we throw stones at these men, we must know that we, once upon a time, shared the same sin nature. We are not different from them. The evil that burst forth from their hearts is in all of us. I hope that we see the awful corruption of those both the Jews and the Gentiles. I hope that we see ourselves in that. I, I, I hope that we could see ourselves filling their shoes. Because we were, we were made of the same clay. In Isaiah chapter 1, it says about basically all humanity, the whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is nothing sound in it, only bruises, wells, and raw wounds. So I hope that we could visualize how appropriate this picture is of the corruption of sin that afflicts each and every one of us. Just like those people at that time, we're all defiled. Just like these men, our understanding was darkened. Our eyes were blinded. Our hearts were made of stone. Our conscience is defiled. Our wills are enslaved to sin. Unlike those men, sin in us leads us to hate God. We don't want him to rule and to reign so that we can pursue our love for sin. And so sin demands death of our creator. Brothers, it was us that crucified the Lord of glory. You know, there are two things guaranteed in this world. It is not tax and death. No, but two other things guaranteed. You know what they are? One, we will never be able ever to comprehend the height of God's goodness. But do you know what the second one is? We will never be able to comprehend the depth of our wretchedness. 
consider what we are like without Christ. All of us. The second, consider Christ. Consider Christ. These soldiers, little did they know that in their sarcasm and scorn of Christ, that they were actually testifying of some truth that was hidden from them. Because you know what? One day God will turn this mockery into reality. Consider Christ the King before whom those same soldiers' knees, their knees will bow, not in pretense, but in terror. Every Jew that cried out, crucify him. And every Roman soldier that mocked Christ saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They will all confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And not just them, but everyone in his world. The day will come, according to Revelation 2.27, that Christ the Lord will rule not with a reed, but with a rod of iron. And he will deal retribution to his enemies, smashing them, crushing them as easy as one shatters glass. You can read that in Psalm 2. Christ the King. Brothers and sisters, consider him. That one day he will rule, not in the hearts of his people only, as he is right now. Not, not from heaven. But he will rule majestically on earth. Not just as a king of the Jews. But king over all the kingdoms of the earth. That is the Christ that we worship, brothers and sisters. And the third thing that I call upon all of us, brothers, to consider to consider the cost of our salvation. The cost of our salvation, brothers. If it was a, a sinful man, a mortal, mere man, who offered his life for us to save us, how thankful should we be? And even if you take it further and you say, well, if it was a majestic, angelic being, a soldier of God's army that was willing to be mocked and to be spat upon on our behalf, then our gratefulness would quickly multiply. But it's neither a sinful or mere man nor an angelic being. It is the eternal Son of God, the one who knows nothing but praises and worship, the one who is worthy of all adoration and exaltation. He is the one who allowed himself to be so mocked and to be hit with a reed, to be contempt, in contempt. He was spat upon. Why? 
so that we, vile sinners as we are, to be recipients of all his glory and honor. The one who the scripture tells us was clothed with majesty, adorning himself with splendor, wrapped in light, yet allowed himself to be stripped naked and suffered shame. Why? So that we who are naked of all goodness will be clothed with his perfect righteousness and thus be sheltered from the wrath to come. Brethren, let us consider and ponder upon this cost of salvation. What, what breadth, what length, height and depth of the love of Christ that he has for us. He allows his holy name to be dragged through the mud by a mob of vile men. Why? In order for him to become our perfect substitute. How do we apply this in our lives? Well, if we know that it is our love for sin that led our Savior to suffer so terribly, then how can we continue in it? Rather, shouldn't we be in utter disgust, fleeing it away, crying out to God to burn, to utterly burn in us all affections that don't glorify Christ? If we could grasp the love of our Lord, His mercy and His grace that He granted us through this perfect substitution, then what fervent desire, what zeal, what love, what passion that should fill our hearts for Him, that with every fiber of our being, we would long to cling to Him. If he was so reviled for us to this degree, is it too great to honor his name all the days of our lives, brothers and sisters? Whether at home, with our family, in a church, or at work. Brothers, would to God that every corner of our hearts be filled with our Christ. But to God that this truth of His greatness permeate all of our beings and will come out of our lips in every street corner of Melbourne. That everybody would know what kind of person who gave Himself for us. Amen? Friends, if you're an unbeliever today, and you hear such great news of how much of a sweet Savior Jesus Christ is. How cold you have to be to hear this truth, unbelieving friend. How cold do you have to be 
to hear of such a great savior who would offer himself to for wicked people as ourselves. And yet you say, no, I will not come to him. I urge you, sinner in this room, unforgiven sinner in this room, I plead with you. May you never let your heart be that cold that you would reject the Savior of the world only so that you could pursue your love for sin. If God would say, listen, in order for you to be saved, you have to come to church every week and give offerings. And read the Bible. What an easy thing to do, right? Would you do it? Would you not do it? If God would say to you, all right, I'll give you eternal life. But in one condition. That you give away $1,000. Would you not give $1,000 in order for you to guarantee eternal life? You would, right? But yet God today offers salvation freely. To anyone that would just come and grab it. If you would come to Christ. If you believe that he died for you. If you believe. But that he is your perfect substitute. That great king. The immortal God. Has taken upon himself. Our humanity. To come and offer himself. Once and for all. An atonement. A sacrifice on your behalf. Would you not accept it? It is for free. That's the greatest news. You don't have to read the Bible. You say, I don't have to read the Bible. No, you don't. I don't have to come to church. No, you don't. I don't have to give $1,000. Not even a penny. He paid it all. In order to offer you free eternal salvation. Friend. How cold would your heart have to be to hear that eternal life is granted freely at the expense of Christ the King and yet you reject it? May none of us on that great reckoning day be found out to have rejected this offer of salvation, may none of us be found to be a false convert. I plead with you as we come to the end of the message. Come to Christ. Believe in him. He will grant you eternal life for free. If you believe that he died for you, and if you accept this gift of God with a believing heart, God will grant you eternal life. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is King. Jesus is mighty and powerful. But yet at the same time, he's so loving, he's so compassionate, he's so humble, he is so sweet. 
What a great Savior we have. Lord, would you cause us to be drawn to him more and more. Drink from this ever non-ending fountain of goodness. Lord, put in our hearts zeal, commitment that have even the closest people to us, even our family members that we love dearly and cherish more than even ourselves, even if they would not follow after this king. Would you put in our hearts this desire to follow him all the way to the new earth? In Jesus' name, amen.